People don't normally have an issue when you say, I've put my faith in Christ. He has forgiven my sins and I'm right with God. By and large, people don't have a problem with that. They're not yet offended. The point of offense comes when you say, and so must you. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to Part 6, the conclusion of our current series with Pastor Paul Twiss, What's in a Name? Pastor Paul has shown us, among many other things, how prominently Jesus was quoted throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as being the Son of Man. The original Son of Man was Adam, who failed his test. Next, it was the people of Israel, and they failed miserably. Finally, it was King David, as chronicled in 2 Samuel. And then God sent his own son, born of a virgin and named Jesus of Nazareth. This son of man was and is the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was sent to the cross by those he came to rescue, the religious leaders of Israel and their followers. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sinless sacrifice for our sins, but he was resurrected and lives, bringing salvation to all. Here's part six of What's in a Name? How great is your view of Jesus? Annie is two years old. I brush her teeth every night. When I brush, I sing. The reason being, for some strange reason, Daddy's bad singing mesmerizes Annie such that she will sit still long enough for me to get the toothbrush around her mouth. Now, what do we sing? Well, often I'll sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Annie tries to join in and it fails because she has a toothbrush in her mouth. (laughs) And the whole thing becomes a debacle, but we get there in the end and the teeth are clean and she's happy. Will I still sing that song with her when she is 18? 20, toothbrushing aside, will I still sing that song with my daughter when she's 20? And the answer is no. Because when Annie is 20, she needs a much bigger view of Jesus than the one she has at the age of two. She needs a more robust theology of Christ when she's facing the realities of life, when she's facing the brokenness of life, she needs a bigger theology of Jesus than the one that I give her now. We cannot have a small Christ. If you are to live a life that truly honors the Lord, if you are to live a life navigating through all of the brokenness and the tragedies and the trials of life, then your Jesus can't be one who simply fits in your pocket. If he fits in your pocket in peacetime, I guarantee in times of trial, he will not be big enough for you. 
If he fits in your pocket in peacetime, then when your life is shattered, your theology won't stand up to what is happening. You need a biblical view of Jesus. The problem being that we tend to develop our theologies around ourselves. We are so self-centered that we build our theology around ourselves as if we're the center of salvation history, as if Jesus came to forgive me of my sins, to make life good for me, and to ensure that I get to heaven. If that's all you've got, then your Jesus is far too small. You need to see Jesus as he is and as he claims to be in the text, as the center of salvation history for all nations. You need to understand that this man came to reign over the Arctic and the jungles and the deserts and the cities and the oceans and the mountains. And he mediates God perfectly to all of creation. So much so that when he comes back and establishes his reign on this earth as son of God, the character of God will go out and the whole earth will boast of God's glory in a way that it has not since Genesis chapter three. The whole earth will boast of the glory of God when the son of God sits on his throne. And this must be the reality, the truth upon which you set your mind day after day after day, trusting that it is of the utmost importance for you to do so. All the other things that would claim your time are not nearly as important as your gazing upon the sun. Now, if we take our finger off the pause button, we move on, and here is where we observe our second ripple in the pool. The high priest drops a pebble, saying, Are you the Son of God? And the first ripple, Jesus confesses that he is. The second ripple that we can observe is that he says, I'm also the son of man. And so we might ask, well, what does it mean that he is son of God and son of man? What does it mean that those two familiar titles are here brought together in one text? If you look again at verse 64, Jesus says, you have said so. Well, the NAS says, you have said it yourself. Why does Jesus answer in this way? It's almost like there's a reluctance on his part. He doesn't come out and say, yes, I am, you got it. Why does he answer in this way? One commentator calls this a qualified admission, a qualified omission. Jesus is saying, yes, it is true, I am the Son of God. But if we paraphrase, it would be like him saying, yes, but I wouldn't have asked the question like that. Yes, I am the son of God, but, but that's now not how I would have asked the question. Or, yes, I am the son of God, but there's more to it than that. There's more to tell you about who I am. And this is where we get his second confession. Jesus says, I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's pulling on the text of Daniel 7, We were there last week and we saw all that it meant to be the son of man walking in the footsteps of broken Adam, fallen Adam, come to restore broken creation up to God. 
If I was to summarize the ministry of the Son of Man, I would say he has come to restore broken creation up to God. And here, Jesus brings together Son of God and Son of Man titles. And in one sense, on a simplistic level, we could say this simply further challenges our understanding of who Jesus is. Just in case you thought you had a big enough picture of Jesus, you really don't. He is the Son of God and all that that means, and he's the Son of Man. Back to back. How's that for a quiet time to meditate upon? But there's more to it than that. All the way through the gospel narrative, Jesus has been hinting at a relationship between Son of God and Son of Man. Read through the gospel narrative. Specifically, look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see how they portray the relationship. What you find is that often there is a confession that Jesus is the Son of God. You're the Son of the Blessed One. And to our surprise, if our eyes are wide open and we're asking good questions of the text, to our surprise, Jesus does not say, let me tell you about this Son of God. He doesn't say, you're right, now let me explain that Son of God title to you. To our surprise, what Jesus says in response to many Son of God confessions is, let me tell you about the Son of Man. Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of Man has to go and suffer. And so all the way through, up until the trial scene, Jesus has already been hinting that there is a relationship between the two. He has been playing off the Son of God confessions with Son of Man teaching. And here, Jesus himself brings them together, the relationship being simply this, that as the Son of Man restores the broken created order up to God, then the way has been made for the Son of God to mediate God down to creation. It is like a chain reaction. When the Son of Man succeeds in his mission, then the Son of God comes to establish his authority. When the Son of Man redeems, then the Son of God reigns. The Son of Man has come to suffer, to die for the sins of his people. And when he accomplishes his mission, the way has been opened for now the Son of God to come to earth and sit on the throne and reign over the nations. So when the priest asks Jesus, are you the Son of God? And he answers in a slightly curious way. He's saying, you've only got half the story. Let me finish the story for you. I am the Son of God, yes but I am the Son of Man also. And as he brings them together, he shows us perhaps more than anywhere else in the gospel narrative, just how unique a solution he is to redemptive history. Just how unique a solution Jesus is to the problem of sin. What Jesus is doing here is that he is lining up the crosshairs of the gospel squarely on his person. He is saying it won't work for those crosshairs to be one inch off focused on anything else. Or maybe I illustrate with a, a lock and key analogy. If you follow redemptive history through the scriptures, it's very convoluted. God has ordained a very 
detailed, convoluted history and the problem of sin and brokenness and idolatry is a complex one that needs the gospel to solve it. The only key that will fit in the lock is necessarily very, very complex. On one side of the key, there is an intricate design relating to the Son of God. And there were other sons of God, but they all failed. On the other side of the key, there is an equally complex design relating to the Son of Man. And so when you look at his confession and think through all that precedes these two titles, you see just how unique a solution Jesus is to our great problem. There were other sons of God and they all failed. There were other sons of men and they all failed. There is one man who fulfills both offices perfectly. And he brings them together in this confession saying, I am the one who unlocks gospel salvation to the ends of the earth. And only me. This is what theologians call the exclusivity of Christ. It can be no one else. Salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other name. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except the name of Christ. As Jesus brings the two together, he sets off a bomb the repercussions of which are felt to the extremities of the broken universe and they keep going and going forever. The hopes of the world are on this man and as we see the crosshairs of the gospel lining up specifically on Christ, understanding that they cannot move but one inch or the gospel fails, then we understand the need in our own hearts and minds to continually affirm him as Lord and Saviour. We understand the need in our own hearts and minds to affirm him as the only means by which we can be saved. We all have a default in our souls towards works as a means of saving ourselves, and it's a fight that we must engage in every day. We are saved by Jesus alone. And we need to think through the implications of it, as there are many who would say, even within the church, there are other means by which a man might be saved. In modern missions, one thing you might hear often is that somebody, a man or a woman, in the remotest parts of the earth where Jesus hasn't been named and the gospel has not been made known can be saved another way. It's common to hear that in modern missions, and that does great harm to the gospel. To say that is to somehow say that Jesus isn't Lord over that part of the earth. To say that is to move the crosshairs of the gospel off Christ, even if it is only in that little area there where Jesus hasn't been named. As hard as it might be to embrace the alternative, which is to say that God in his sovereignty and wisdom for some reason has ordained that this person here might go through life never hearing the gospel articulated, never being presented with a way to accept Christ and therefore they die and they do perish. As hard as that might be in our finite minds to stomach and to embrace, 
We must because the alternative is to move the crosshairs away from Jesus as son of God and son of man and to say that he is not the unique answer to salvation. And notice also, not only is this a doctrine to be prized, not only must we continually glory and delight in the fact that Jesus is the son of man and son of God together perfectly, understand that this is a doctrine that will get you into trouble. People don't normally have an issue when you say, I've put my faith in Christ. He has forgiven my sins and I'm right with God. By and large, people don't have a problem with that. They're not yet offended. The point of offense comes when you say, and so must you. The point of offense comes when you communicate the exclusivity of Christ. When you say, whatever your way is, if it isn't Christ, it's wrong. When you communicate to somebody, whatever you believe in, I guarantee you are not right with God unless it is the gospel. That is the exclusivity of Christ, and it is that that will become a point of contention and will get you into trouble. Look at the text. Consider the fact that Jesus is doing that just here. It just so happens that he is the Son of God and Son of Man. He's bearing witness to his uniqueness as the key that unlocks the gospel's salvation, and they call out for his death. I do believe that they would have called out for his death based on either confession. And yet here he brings them together and they are outraged because they understand what he's saying. And the irony of the text is that for us to move those crosshairs off Christ is to commit blasphemy. He puts them squarely on himself and they call out blasphemy. And yet it is this confession that leads him to the cross. And every day, All over the world, Christians are persecuted because they hold to Christ as the only way to salvation. Every day, people are persecuted because they will not let go of Christ being the only means to salvation. And you need to reconcile that fact in your own heart that it may bring suffering into your life. To confess him as son of man, son of God, perfectly, both offices together, the only means to salvation. The question might be asked, how then do we persevere? How might we persevere and go on, understanding that that confession might bring harm? And this is where we can think about the truth that the sons of men are now declared to be sons of God. The third ripple in the pool is that the sons of men based upon the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, are now declared by the Bible to be sons of God. In an implicit, indirect way, we could argue it from this text. Jesus is quoting from Daniel 7. And you might remember in Daniel 7, the Son of Man's ministry is connected to the saints' ministry. However the Son of Man goes, the saints go. As he triumphs, the saints triumph. So in an indirect way, you could argue from this text about the corporate nature of this confession. But as we go on throughout the New Testament, it's made more clear for us. John says, all that have believed, he gave the right to be called children of God. Paul says to the Romans, he begins the letter to the Romans with son of God theology. He talks about Jesus who died and was resurrected and is declared to be the son of God. And as he goes through the letter, he expounds the riches of the gospel. He says in chapter eight, creation is groaning for what? The revelation of the sons of God. The creation is waiting 
for the day when the fullness of our salvation will be revealed. Now that is not to say that we aren't sons of God right now. The second you put your faith in Christ, you are adopted into his family and you are declared to be a son or a daughter of God. But we think too much on the immediate benefits and we don't think often enough on that which is to come. There is an aspect of our salvation which is yet to be revealed. There is an aspect of our salvation which has not yet been made known to us in all of its fullness. The day is coming so soon when Jesus will appear, Son of God, Son of Man, and the sons of God will be made fully known. And with creation, we must groan. We must look forward eagerly to that day, understanding that there are no guarantees to a peaceable life between now and then understanding that we have responsibilities as sons and daughters of God to make God known and understanding that there is incredible untold blessing for the sons of God when the Son of God appears. As we close this short two-part series on Christ, I want to just say if you don't know him and you have not looked at him in such a way that you find him glorious, beautiful, in such a way that, as the Puritans said, you do not have a true and special interest in Christ, then you remain a son or a daughter of Adam, a creature of the fall, and you will not be declared to be a child of God in the day that Jesus appears. The way has been made. The gospel is available for salvation. It is not found in anybody else, only in the person of Christ. But if you call upon his name, he receives you. So don't fail this evening to speak to somebody. Speak to your friend, go to the prayer room, ask somebody about the gospel and the means by which you might move from darkness to light and know the blessings of being a child of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks for the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man building upon all of redemptive history, this confession is in many ways the high point of the gospel. In many senses, Christ is revealed to us more fully here than anywhere else. Father, help us to be diligent to set our gaze upon the Son. May there be in our lives, may it be characteristic of our lives that we meditate upon our Savior in so doing, being strengthened and built up, equipped for life in a broken world, groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. Pray for anybody who doesn't know you savingly that you would work in their heart, bring them into the realities of gospel salvation. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul ended today's teaching with this plea, quote, The way has been made. The gospel is available for salvation. It is not found in anybody else, only in the person of Christ. But if you call upon his name, he receives you, End quote. This door of salvation is open to everyone through God's grace. Will you accept this gift? It's free but it's not cheap. 
If you'd like to hear any part of this series again, visit our website at timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcast, and there you'll find this series and so much more, all dealing with the good news of Jesus Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a local church, we invite you to come worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. Bethany Bible Church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. We've got a new teaching series with Pastor Paul called Faith That Faces Death. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.